The following has been recorded at Cairn University. Any reproduction of this recording without the express permission of the university is prohibited. Well, good morning, Cairn. Uh, if you would, open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. Some years ago, as I was uh, sitting right as, where you are seated, uh, I never really considered the possibility that one day I'd be standing on this side of the chapel stage. In fact, in my years when I was here, I only set foot on this stage once, and that was to help move that piano off of this stage. So I want you to know what an enormous privilege I think it is to be here today, and not just to be standing on this side of the chapel stage, but the opportunity that we have to gather around God's Word. And part of that is because we live in a country that affords us that privilege But even more important and more wondrous is that the infinite creator God has chosen to speak to us, and he's set it down in this book. And I pray that he will speak to all of us today as we look to his word. Well, all around the world this Sunday, millions of people will gather in churches. Some of them will be in church plants that are meeting for the very first time. And others will be in cathedrals that are centuries old. Some will be in tiny house churches with just a few in attendance. And others will be in mega churches with tens of thousands in attendance. And among those people that will gather in these churches, they will do so for a variety of reasons. For some they will have just come to know Jesus as their Savior this week, and they will attend church for the very first time. For others, they will have been convicted this week, and they'll be returning after a long absence. Some could not imagine doing anything else on a Sunday morning than gathering with God's people in worship. And others will be drug out to services by a parent or spouse. Some are expectantly anticipating hearing from God. Some are looking for a little encouragement before embarking on a new week. And some have no idea why they're attending. Well, our text today comes from the section on the Lord's Prayer. And as Jesus instructs us how to pray, we should note that he first told us how not to pray. And in that section on how not to pray, there are two other groups of people that will be attending church services this week. There are first the hypocrites, and these folks are attending so that others will see them, and they might gain some kind of applause or reputation for themselves. And then there are those who are like the Gentiles of verse 7. Now, the Gentiles in this context are those who worship pagan gods, and they approach their gods on contractual terms, seeking to obligate the gods through their actions to act on their behalf. And so there are people like this who will be attending church this week in order to move God to do their will. But in our text today, we'll see that this is backwards. And that a true disciple is to pray for God's will to be done here and now on earth, just 
as it is done in heaven. As we turn to the scriptures, we're going to read Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, but the message will focus just on verse 10b. Please join me now in Matthew 6, 9 and 10. This is God's word given for us. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen. Praise God for his word to us. So what is Jesus asking us to pray for when he says, pray your will be done on earth as it is in heaven? I assume you are familiar with the gospel story, and so this may actually call to mind a similar prayer that Jesus prayed. Aware of his impending suffering and crucifixion, he withdrew in the garden and prayed three times, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And so we should first grasp the gravity of a prayer like this. Pastor and Professor Kent Hughes considers that of the six petitions in the Lord's Prayer, this one is the most abused. How many of the millions of people who will pray this prayer this week will do so without ever considering the absolute surrender that is required in this petition? Such thoughts led Martin Luther to call this a fearful prayer. Now, we are certainly permitted to pray for physical safety, and it must be right to petition the God of all comfort for comfort. But that is not what this prayer is about. In this petition, we say, let your will be done in my life. Whatever will most lead to the coming of your kingdom, whatever will most lead to the hallowing of your name in this situation and at this time, let your will be done. Let me do your will now as it is done always in heaven. Such a prayer is fearful because it means submitting our desires and plans and control of our lives to the will of another. Such a prayer would be downright terrifying if it were offered to a tyrant or to a capricious pagan god. That is not who we are praying to. This prayer is directed to your Father in heaven, who has promised that whatever his will may be in a given situation, he will be with you. Whatever his will may be in a given situation, it is ultimately always for your good. And so a prayer like this, while it is weighty, and it may be fearful in terms of the submission required, it ultimately leads to joyful freedom and the fulfillment of the purpose for which you exist. As we seek to understand more of this petition, we're going to organize the rest of our thoughts under three main headings, and here they are for you. First, which will are we praying for? Second, knowing and doing the will of God. And third, joyful freedom. First, which, are we, which will are we praying for? 
Now, some of you may think, well, this seems kind of easy, Brian. That word, your, refers back to Father. This is basic grammar. Uh, so it's God's will that we're praying for. And since I've answered your question, move on to that second heading. But not so fast. The Bible uses the term will of God in two ways. The first is what we can call his will of decree or his sovereign will. And this is the will of God that always comes to pass no matter what. In other words, this will is always done on earth and in heaven. And it is according to this will that God has sovereignly decreed all that comes to pass and governs all creatures and actions and things according to the immutable counsel of his own will. And when we say all things here, it means all. Matthew 10.29, not a sparrow will fall to the ground apart from your father. Whether you will hit red or green lights on your drive home for Thanksgiving break, or your flight will be delayed, whether I even live to finish delivering this sermon will only be because the sovereign Lord has decreed that it will be so. Now, the second use of the phrase, the will of God, has to do with what we can call God's will of precept or his will of command. And this is the will of God that he has revealed to us in his word. The instructions that are here in the Sermon on the Mount, the Ten Commandments, the law to love God with all that you are and your neighbor as yourself would be examples of God's will of command. And our experience in this world and in our own lives shows us that this will is not done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, one practical aspect of understanding these differences in the will of God is that if you were to only think of the sovereign will of God, which cannot be resisted, then this prayer could lead to a lazy Christian life that just kind of sits back and lets things happen, a fatalistic sense of whatever will be will be. After all, who could resist his will? But this prayer is actually calling for an active Christian life in which you are driven with a hunger and thirst to participate in the divine purpose, the working out of his will and the doing of God's will here on earth as it is done in heaven. And so of the two options, I would say that it is more God's will of command that we're praying for here. And that qualifier on earth as it is in heaven would lead us in that direction. And yet, we don't want to lose sight of his sovereign will either. All the trouble, all the misery that exists in this world is a direct result of someone rebelling against the will of God. Now, it may be very direct, as in the case of murder, abuse, or racism, or it may be indirectly through the sin of Adam that we experience death and disease and natural disasters. Now, all of these show that there is ultimately no life, no joy, no peace or flourishing apart from conformity to the will of God. And the Christian hope is bound up in the promises of God, which depend on his sovereign will, in which he has decreed a day when these things will be no more. 
on that day, all God's will shall be done on earth as it is in heaven. The kingdom will come in fullness and the name of God will be hallowed. So we long for and we pray for that day when his will will prevail throughout the earth. And one further practical aspect of understanding these differences in the will of God, and I hope this will help you, as you have opportunity to speak with those who do not know Jesus or to believers who are struggling with doubt, when tragedy hits and there is a miscarriage or a young child dies, when cancer strikes, when there is abuse, mass shootings, terrorist attacks, natural disasters, car accidents. Was that the will of God? When someone's questioning the Christian faith, or when someone is in the midst of the pain of one of these tragedies, you almost have this sense where you want to jump to God's defense and say, no, of course not. That's not God's will. And in one sense, that's right. According to his revealed will in the Bible, God did not make people to kill other people. He made the womb for life and not for death. He made this world for human flourishing, not for it to attack us with natural disasters or disease. In the midst of their pain, people need to know that God is compassionate, that he hates sin and all of its effects. But we also need a sovereign God in those moments. If you totally remove God from the picture and say that these events are in no way God's will, then you lose the hope and the assurance of his good promises. If something, if anything occurs apart from the decree of God, then he is no longer sovereign. If you say that it was not his will in any sense, then you have made God impotent to guarantee that he can work that tragedy for good. And your suffering may be totally meaningless. The beloved Romans 8.28 that says, He works all things for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose depends on a sovereign God in which nothing can occur apart from his sovereign will. There is no other way to guarantee that it will work for good. If you deny God governs all events, you will have no God to walk with you through those trials or to hope in as a steadfast anchor for the soul when tragedy hits. You will at best have a weak God of empty cliches and promises without foundation. Do not rob yourselves. Do not rob others of the hope that is found in a sovereign Father, God. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says that the secret things belong to the Lord our God. 
But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. It doesn't make it easy to walk through these trials. And we are not promised that we will always understand why God allows these things. But he has revealed enough of himself that we can trust him and enough of his will that we can do all that he has called us to. That leads into the next heading, knowing and doing the will of God. The prayer, your will be done, includes an active commitment to do the will of God. And if we're going to do the will of God, then we have to know the will of God. And if we are going to know the will of God, then we must know the word of God. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says in abbreviated form, that all scripture is breathed out by God and is useful that we may be equipped for every good work. In other words, the Bible contains all the divine words necessary for you to know and to do the will of God in every situation you face. Sometimes this comes in the form of direct statements, you shall not murder. And sometimes there are not explicit statements. And so, for instance, there's no Bible passage that you can turn to for an explicit statement on biblical text messaging. But... The Bible does contain all the divine words necessary for you to text in a way that pleases God and does his will. This, as we come to know the scriptures better, we're able to grow in wisdom, we're better, to able, we're better able to apply that wisdom to all the situations we face. And so in the case of texting, you might apply the command to love your neighbor as yourself and determine that texting behind the wheel fails to love other image bearers. Or that sending a group text at 6 a.m. on Saturday morning is not the best time to text because it is not likely to lead your neighbor to glorify God. This is a life long commitment to study and to know the scriptures better, to better know the will of God, to better do the will of God. And we obviously cannot pack an entire lifetime into the next few minutes, so let me approach this in terms of great general principles. What is God's will for you today? This is a question I remember asking myself, one I still ask, But one I was asking as I returned here for yet another semester, I was married, our first child was born, the stress was mounting, and I was wondering if I could even make it through yet another semester. Is this really what God wants for me? And then Dr. Williams begins chapel. Whatever apprehensions or concerns you have, whatever doubts you have about whether this is where you should be. It is no accident you are here. God is sovereign. He's assembled us together here. Wow. How did he know? Well, it's likely the case that he just knows students. And there were probably 50, maybe even 200 of us that he was speaking to that day. Well, here you are today. And if you're here today, in terms of general principles, your life, I direct you to Romans 12, 1 and 2. 
It's an expression of God's will for you today. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So we're praying that God's will would be done on earth as in heaven. We're committing ourselves to do the will of God. And Paul says then, here, present your bodies as though your whole life were presented to God on an altar. It is a living sacrifice. You die to self in order to live a different way, to live for the God's will rather than for your own. And in this way, your whole life becomes worship. It is an acceptable sacrifice to God. Like the Old Testament sacrifices, it is a sweet and pleasing aroma to the Lord. Now further, Christian, if you are committing your will to be governed by the will of God, then you cannot be conformed to the world. Instead, you are to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And this, too, is a lifelong pursuit. On the one hand, if you are a Christian, then you are a new creation in Christ. And that is a one-time event. But being transformed by the renewal of your mind is a process. This word transformed is a present verb. In other words, this is God's will for you today and tomorrow and next year. And so if we wonder, what is God's will for me? What does he want me to do? And the general principle is that whatever contributes to your growth in holiness, the surrender of your will and the renewal of your mind, that is at the heart of God's will for you. And what is, whatever does not contribute to your holiness, the surrender of your will and the renewal of your mind is not God's will for you. This word transformed is also in the passive voice. In other words, Paul isn't saying, go transform yourself, but let yourself be transformed. This transformation is the work of the Holy Spirit. We need his renewing grace in our lives if we're going to commit to and do the will of God and love the will of God as it is done in heaven. But before you kick back and relax and just wait for the Spirit to rush over you, you should know that this word is also in the imperative. It is a command. And so your responsibility in the process is not canceled. You must submit to and cooperate with the Spirit's work. You need to be in the word if he's going to renew your mind by it. You need to be in prayer asking him to do this work in you. And you need to be in the community of the church. And coming to the Lord's table where he has said he will feed and nourish and equip you to do God's will. And the result of all of this is that you will be able to discern what is the will of God and do that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Well, let's wrap up now with our final heading, Joyful Freedom. We've used words like submission, Surrender, conformity, sacrifice, a lot today. 
And these are not words that we often associate with joy or freedom. So how do we end here? Well, it really has to do with how we began. Well, this sermon's based on verse 10b in Matthew 6. We read from verse 9. And this was not only to avoid an oddly short scripture reading. It's because we cannot really divorce the petitions of this prayer from the one we are petitioning. It is our Father in heaven. 19th century pastor Alexander McLaren expressed it this way. We are sure that the will of God is loving and good. Then our obedience becomes different. And instead of slavish, it is filial. Instead of being reluctant submission to a mightier force, is glad conformity to the fountain of love and goodness. Instead of being sullen resignation, is trustful reliance. Instead of being painful execution of unwelcome duties, is spontaneous expression in acts that flow from the indwelling love. He who begins with thy will be done is a slave and never really does the will at all. He who begins with our Father, hallowed be your name, is a son and obeys from the heart. In addition to knowing who we are praying to, we need to know something about ourselves. God created mankind in his image to rule over the, the creation and have dominion in order to bring about God's will for the creation. And Adam and Eve were capable of fulfilling the purpose for which they existed. And in this, they were truly free. The loftiest ideal for anything is that it should fulfill the purpose for which it exists. And anything that prevents this is enslavement. But the reality of our fallen condition after their disobedience is that we are born in bondage to sin. Our will under the burden of sin is under the burden of sin and evil, but through his perfect obedience to the will of God and death on the cross, Jesus has achieved redemption, not just of our souls, not just of our bodies, but of our minds and of our wills as well, so that we are able to will and to desire and to do that which is the will of God through the regeneration that comes from the Holy Spirit. Now, this is true freedom. It leads to joy and to the fulfillment of the purpose for which you exist. But more than just being an individual thing, this is our mission as the church. In making disciples from every nation, we are participating in God's mission. God is gathering people from every tribe and tongue and nation who have rebellious wills. And through the new life in the Holy Spirit, he is bringing their wills into conformity to his own these individuals along with us are learning to live for Christ, to will as God wills, and one day we will all be able to say, just as Jesus did, I always do what pleases my Father. But until that day, 
and continue to pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Would you pray with me? Father, you are infinite in knowledge, love, and power. And your will is therefore good, acceptable, and perfect. Give us the wisdom to discern, to desire, and to do your will on earth as it is in heaven. May our lives exemplify your reign before a watching world in such a way that they would see in and among us an approximation of what heaven is like, a desire to share in that future kingdom. The glory of your name and expansion of your kingdom, we pray it through Jesus. Amen.